Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Heavenly Father, images fill our minds. There are angels all around, we sang. That's an awesome thought. The angels that you yourself send on our behalf, how are we to know they are not here this very moment? And they themselves await the teaching of your word. May your spirit enable us to teach it well and clearly and to receive it with the same kind of joy the heavenly hosts do. For we ask this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his glorious church. Amen. Today's message, as we continue in this series, Red Letter Living, is titled, A Gift Like No Other. And let me just tell you ahead of time, I think we possibly could say, this is going to be a message like no other. So turn to somebody and just say, this might be a message like no other. And what I mean by that is perhaps in its organization, Perhaps in the way that we walk ourselves through the scripture, it might be a message like no other, and hopefully the way the Spirit impacts our heart with it, it will also be true as we talk about a gift like no other. Now, if you looked at your note sheet, you picked up its front and back, and there's lots there. That means you can take home all the main stuff. It's already written down. And you might be able to just put that on your seat now and just listen and let the words impact you, knowing that you don't have to frantically write anything to be sure you have it. But here we go. A gift like no other. And this message arises directly from today's red letter scripture. Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Of course, these are Jesus' words. He said, if you then, if you then, though you are evil, that means sinful, fallen, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. And what mom and dad don't know how to do that? Jesus says, that's a given. That's true. I'm just telling you, you know that's true. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, that wonderful observation shared today that Jesus shared with the people of his day leads directly to today's key concept. And today's key concept, in turn, suggests, and I'm going to suggest and point out to us, something that's become a very common yet misguided Christian strategy. So first of all, then, 
the key concept. Here it is. Today's key concept, no matter what we need, the Holy Spirit is the answer. Now, notice I didn't say no matter what we want. No matter what we need. No matter what we as children of God need to become the people God would have us be, to do the things God would have us do, to function in this fallen world the way God would have us function. No matter what we need to be his children in this world, the Holy Spirit is the answer. Now, that's what Jesus was saying. He was reminding the people of his day that the Holy Spirit really was a gift like no other. They could think of all the good gifts they've given to their children. But basically, he's saying, as a kid might say, the goodest gift. When God the Father is giving them out, the best gift is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the answer for whatever is needed. So that's our key concept. We'll start with that. I think almost every born-again child of God would agree with that. Let's just take a test. How many of you agree with that? Holy Spirit's the best gift we could ever receive, and he's the answer for whatever is needed. Just, oh, just let the Holy Spirit go to work in my life. That'll be the answer here. So we agree with that. The Holy Spirit's God's best gift to his children. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is a gift like no other. Now, what we're going to see this morning, that you may not think about a whole lot, but we're going to point it out so we, we know the path we're on and how things go as God's working with this. We will see this morning that this gift, this gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift like no other, the answer for everything, was granted even to the Lord Jesus himself. This gift of the Holy Spirit was, in fact, the means whereby Jesus Christ performed such miraculous deeds and spoke such profound words during his earthly ministry. He received the gift. The Holy Spirit, who comes from the Father, is the means whereby all things honoring to God and beneficial to the believer come. So we ask, most important thing we could ask, how we get him? If he's the answer to everything, unfortunately not to my high school math test, but if he's the answer to everything I need as a believer, to function as a believer, how do I get him? How do I be sure I have all of him? How do I get the full benefit of the Holy Spirit? What strategy, if we could use that word, must we employ if we would receive the Holy Spirit and experience all of his enabling grace? How do we go about doing it? I said a moment ago, I was going to mention a misguided human strategy. Well, what strategy is a good one? What is the strategy for uh, getting the Holy Spirit in his fullness in our life? Well, it would seem that the obvious answer to that question is given right in those red letters we already read. So it might be a very short message today. What would Jesus say according to what we just read? Well, ask the Father. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask the Father. That's what Jesus said should be done. 
Let the Father know that that is what you want. Now, let me ask this question. How many prayers have been prayed by born-again children of God, and how many songs have been sung seeking to communicate that very request? Father, give us the Holy Spirit. How many of them? have even been sung directly to the Spirit, seeking His entrance and His presence and His power in our lives. Here are the opening lines from a few old ones. Come, Holy Spirit, I need you. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Did you notice the sensitive sensitive way Joe altered that to make it biblically right? We sang that just a moment ago. Spirit of the living God, have your way in me. So think about that. Why the change? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, the the older saints used to sing. Or this one, Holy Ghost, a little more King Jamesy, Holy Ghost with power divine, come and fill this heart of mine. Anybody here old enough that you ever sang that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, the hymn book was full of those. And there's many, many more. And there's contemporary songs that I'm not familiar with necessarily that probably carry the same message. Oh, please, oh, please, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. Pray, ask, ask God for the Holy Spirit. Beseech the Spirit himself. All of those prayers prayed. And all those songs sung reflect a fervent heart and a proper understanding of the necessity of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. But, now get ready for this. Are you ready? I'm not sure. Matt, are you ready for this? Okay, here it comes. Here it comes. All those prayers, all those songs... I'm going to say to you this morning, they all belong to an Old Testament mentality. And basically, as an aside, let me just say, that means there's a lot of professing Christians in the world today who are basically living like Old Testament saints. Now, we'll look into that as we go along, but here we are. What I'm going to tell you this morning, and here's another thing, you may never have thought about it this way. You see, Jesus himself could be considered the last of the Old Testament saints. And in this passage, I'm telling you this morning, Jesus was presenting an Old Testament perspective based upon what we're calling today a twofold Old Testament reality. Two things that were true in Old Testament days that I want to share with you, and we're going to just review a few things to make sure we, we know what the Old Testament mentality is before we can contrast it with the New Testament reality. So here we go, twofold Old Testament reality. One, in Old Testament days, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to certain people at certain times to accomplish certain things. Second, 
those to whom the Spirit was sent were empowered and blessed and generally recognized and revered. Let's take just a brief historical review just to reacquaint ourselves. For instance, Moses, way back and almost to the beginning, certainly to the beginning of the nation, Moses had experienced this reality. In the days following their exodus from Egypt, here's what God said to Moses regarding Bezalel, who would be almost single-handedly responsible to craft all the articles for the tabernacle that would be built. God says, Exodus 31.1, I have filled him, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God. I filled him. It's a unique thing God is doing. I have filled this man with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. God sent the Holy Spirit to certain people at certain times to accomplish certain things. The leaders then of the early nation, once they got into the promised land, they had experienced that same reality. It's recorded, for instance, in the books of Judges and 1 Samuel, these things. One, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, Judges 3.10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, remember his name, Judges 6.34. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, remember him, Judges 14.6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, in power it says. Sometimes we just think of Saul as the bad king, the guy who blew it. But in the beginning, he was God. He was a choice that God made. God brought his spirit to Saul. And it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul in power, 1 Samuel 10.10. And then the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, 1 Samuel 16.13, right after Samuel had anointed him. Jesus himself experienced that Old Testament reality. Listen to these reports from the gospel writers. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, that's the water of baptism. John the Baptist had baptized him. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him. That's when the Spirit arrived. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we read, And Jesus returned, that is, after the time of temptation in the wilderness, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. A unique readiness, a unique anointing for what he was about to do. You see, indeed, in Old Testament times, God the Father sent his Holy Spirit to certain people at certain times to accomplish certain things, and those people were generally recognized and revered as true Spirit-filled servants of God. But something else had also been experienced during those Old Testament days. You see, God would send his Spirit upon certain people at certain times, to do certain things, 
But it's also true that the Spirit of God could depart from those upon whom he had come, those to whom God had sent him. It's reported of Samson, Judges 16, 20, that there came a day when, quote, he, that is Samson, did not know that the Lord had left him. That's the Spirit. They'd come upon him in power. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And he went out, thinking he had the power of God upon and within him, and he was captured and humiliated. The power was gone. The spirit was gone. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14, we read this. A similar circumstance befell King Saul. It says in that verse, Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. He's gone. Been sent to, Saul was one of those certain people to whom the Lord had sent his spirit to do certain things, and there came a day when that spirit left. In fact, the scripture goes on to say, and an evil spirit began to torment Saul. Now David, David had known of that possibility. David had seen Saul in his glory. David had talked about the awesomeness of Saul and Jonathan, just warriors for the Lord. How mighty, the, how the mighty have fallen, he, he gives in his eulogy to them. David had seen that this mighty, powerful spirit of God, the effect it could have, and he also knew that it could leave. And there's not much left when the spirit leaves. And so David, in Psalm 51, verse 1, he pleads with God during a time of great trouble in his life. His sinful moments with Bathsheba and then killing her husband and, and all these things. And he knew he had sinned grievously, terribly. And David pleads with God because he saw what God had done with Saul. And he says, do not. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because David knew it could happen. He had seen it happen. The Spirit is sent and the Spirit can be withdrawn. David knew. David knew there could be nothing worse than to lose the very best thing God had ever done for him. He pleaded that God would not take back the best gift that David had ever been given. David knew how horrible earthly life would be if the gracious and powerful Spirit of God were taken from him. And so David relied upon the very promise found in our red-letter scripture that we've already read this morning. He asked God. He asked him. He pleaded with him. He pleaded with him in the negative. It wasn't, Father, give me your Holy Spirit. It was, oh, Father, don't take him away. I know what it's like to have the Holy Spirit come upon me in power, the Spirit of the living God. I know what it's like to have the Spirit of God move my pen and gracious, wonderful, marvelous words and insights of God's goodness flow out of that pen. I know what it's like. Oh God, don't take him away.
That's what our scripture would say. David asked God for a continuation of the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. And David's prayer, praise God, was answered. It was answered just like Jesus said it would be. If anyone desires that Holy Spirit, let him ask. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's what Jesus said. That's what David did to maintain what he had been given. David's last words, just before he died, after his sinfulness and his difficulty in his family, the Holy Spirit remained with him, but boy, the consequences of his sin were brutal with his children in his family. But at the very end of his life, it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, just called in my Bible headed, the last words of David. Those last words are equal to any others he ever penned. They are truly spirit-inspired. You should read them and realize God answered David's prayer to not take away this gift that he'd been given. See, David... David never experienced what it would have been the horror of losing the presence of the precious spirit who chose him, who shaped him into a man after God's own heart. Oh, God, don't take your spirit away from me. That would literally be hell on earth. He had seen Saul walk through that hell. Don't. Don't. And God didn't to David's great relief. But now here's something I want you to see as we focus upon what I've called the last great Old Testament saint upon whom the Holy Spirit came. The horrible reality of what it's like to lose the Holy Spirit after you have once had him That horror was part of Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. His sacrifice for us. It certainly was the removal of that enabling, wonderful, powerful presence of the Spirit of God from his life that caused Jesus to say, Mark 15, 34, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus didn't pray, oh my God, my God, why has this happened to me? My God, my God, I, help me. This is more than I can bear. He prayed that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh God, if you could take this away, take it away, if there's some other way. But on the cross, he didn't talk about his, oh God, help me here, help me here. No, his agony was, my God, my God, even my God has forsaken me. So just take a moment. Just take a moment and sense the intensity of that moment. No other human being had ever experienced the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit like Jesus had. 
you and I will never know the fullness of that relationship with an earthly companion, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus knew. He had more to lose than you and I could ever imagine losing. And we would think it would be terrible, just like David, were God to take his Holy Spirit away from us. Jesus had that presence to the nth degree. It was a perfect fellowship. So now imagine how great the loss. How great the loss. On the cross, Jesus became more sinful in the eyes of God than any other human being had ever become. And as a result, God not only judged him, but God's spirit of necessity deserted him. Jesus suffered alone. Just try to take it in, in a fresh way. Now, as we think about Jesus, you might say as the last great Old Testament saint, the Son of God, the perfect man, as he suffered and died for us, his willingness to do that for you and for me, I want you to think this morning about two wondrous consequences of Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. These are not the only two, but the, the two I want to talk about this morning that maybe we've not thought about before, but here we go. Two wondrous consequences beyond our salvation of Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. Here's the first. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the last child of God to ever experience such a horrible loss. The last child of God who had been, who the Holy Spirit had come upon, who would ever cry out such an agonizing cry after knowing the fullness of the fellowship to experience the utter emptiness of the desertion. Jesus was the last who would ever experience that. God will never, ever again forsake one of his own. Second consequence, the people of Jesus' day were the last people on earth who would ever have to ask the Father for the Holy Spirit and hope to get him. Even though Jesus said he will give to all those who ask, the people of Jesus' day that Jesus was talking to were the last people on earth who would ever be in a position of having to ask their God for the Holy Spirit. And how do I know that? It's because of what these red letters say. And these may be the, the more important red letters of our morning. Here they are. John 14, 15. Jesus says, I will ask. I will ask. The early verses said, if, if any of you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, he will give him. Jesus now says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another companion to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus says, I'll do all the asking. 
You don't have to get on your knees. You don't have to cut yourself with knives. You don't have to fast for 40 days. You don't have to show God how, how honest you are and how insincere you are and how, how all of this is going together so that you might receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, scratch that. If you're going to employ that strategy, you're way off base. That strategy is outmoded. That strategy assumes that the Spirit can be asked for and then gotten and then lost, maybe. There's a whole new deal. Jesus says, I'm the Father's Son. I'll ask for you. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another companion to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And so I'm calling what comes out of that verse today's key revelation. The Holy Spirit no longer needs to be our prayer request. We do not need to beseech and plead and even imagine that he's come. He is the earthly companion sent to us by the Father in response to his own son's prayer request. Wouldn't you wish Jesus would pray every prayer of yours for you? Now, the Holy Spirit helps us with those prayers. He modifies our prayers. He makes sure our prayers are effectively brought before the Lord, but But here, Jesus is praying this prayer, and and we know exactly what it is. Let me just say this. How much trouble and confusion and division within the church of Jesus Christ has come over the failure of believers to take to heart and to stand upon what those red letters say. Jesus has already brought this request before the Father's throne. You don't have to bring it yourself. In fact, if you bring it yourself, you show lack of faith in the effectiveness of your Savior's standing before the Father. It's almost like saying, Father, maybe you won't do it for him, but will you do it for me? That's pretty bad, isn't it? (laughs) Even let your mind get in such a place. Jesus has brought this particular request. If you bring your own request to the Father for the Holy Spirit, you also show your lack of historical awareness because the Father has already granted that request beginning on the day of Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. The birth of the New Testament reality The Holy Spirit began his work of personal companionship with the 120 believers that were huddled together in prayer on that incredible day. Their number grew to over 3,000 before that day ended. And those numbers have increased exponentially over the centuries since. So what a throw it had to be for Peter to declare what I'm calling Peter's new Testament reality. Now here it is. This is the New Testament reality. This is the strategy by which a human being receives the Holy Spirit. And here it is. 
Peter said to the people that very first day, and this message hasn't changed. This was the first New Testament message in light of the death of Christ on Calvary. This was not an Old Testament message relying upon endless sacrifices that would be made again and again and again. This is the New Testament reality in light of Jesus Christ suffering for us. Even suffering, not only the judgment of God, but the desertion of God on the cross of Calvary. This is what Peter said now. When he pointed out that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead, the ones that these people, these Jewish people, just a few days before perhaps some of them had said, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, he is the son of God. He's been raised from the dead. And the people said, what shall we do? And here's Peter's answer. It's like saying, how can I be saved? Peter says, repent. Well, if you were in that bunch saying, crucify, crucify, wouldn't you want to repent of that? Think of the other things they might have to repent of. Think of the things that that any human being has to repent of. Peter says, first off, repent. Recognize you're a sinner in the eyes of God and you need to turn away from the stuff that is displeasing to him. So repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, identify yourself with Jesus Christ in the way that he desires to be identified with in baptism. From the very beginning. Jesus was baptized to identify himself with a sinful fallen humanity. Now people are baptized in Jesus' name to identify themselves with a pure and holy Son of God. And to say, I'm with him. I'm identifying with him. I am claiming him as my Savior. And though we can say those words... Just like we could go through our entire life and never take communion and still believe we're close to Christ. There's a a purpose in communion, a physical thing that Jesus said. There is a purpose in baptism, the physical thing that Peter now identifies. Don't get your head all wrapped around, well, it's the water that washes your sins away. That's not, that's not true. It's the blood of Christ that washes our sins away. We are just as forgiven whether we're baptized or not, but we are not as identified. We are not as obedient. And there may be something else we're not, because listen to this. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. See, that's where the forgiveness comes, through Christ, in Christ. And now, And probably any evangelist in America, probably any one of us typically would finish Peter's sentence this way. Repent, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, confessing that he is the Savior, that he has died for your sins, and you will receive, we would say, and you'll be saved. And you'll be saved. And the evangelist sends people home, glad that they're saved, even from a baptismal service. Sends them home, glad that they are saved, rejoicing that they are saved, knowing that they've identified with Christ. But that's not what Peter said that day. 
That's not what the Holy Spirit had come out of Peter's mouth. The way Peter finished the statement, you can see here, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will what? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every single human being who follows that simple practice receives, if the Bible is true, receives God's incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will companion them right up to and through death's doorway. It's what the Lord Jesus himself has requested for them. Now, what am I going to say today? Am I going to say, if you haven't been baptized upon the profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to say, because the Holy Spirit is the very one who convicted you of your sin in the first place. The Holy Spirit is the very one who acted upon your will to make it want what God is offering. The Holy Spirit has already brought you from death to life, or you wouldn't even be acknowledging Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit's part of this whole process. But don't you get the sense that if you've responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction, if you've acted upon the enlightenment he's given you, if you have even begun to sense the new life that he's placed in you, being that you're born again, do you not sense that if you stop short of something that he identifies with, you're missing out? That somehow, in this exercise of water baptism, in this confession of Jesus Christ in baptism, there is a receiving of something that those who are not baptized do not receive. Peter certainly, he, he linked the whole Holy Spirit to that process. Now, later on, the Apostle Paul would spell on all the theology, and Peter would say, that stuff's hard to figure out. And I just shared some of the theology with you, that everything of the Holy Spirit is not caught up in, in this gift that comes from your baptismal obedience, but something, something, there is a difference in the kingdom of God between believers who have followed the Lord in baptism and those who have not. At the very least, there's an obedience issue that separates them. But Peter links, links this activity of, of confessing Christ in, in baptism with something of the Spirit that God would have us know that God would have us experience, that the Holy Spirit himself would want to bring. And so I'd just say, hey, if you've never been baptized, you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but you've never identified with Jesus Christ in water baptism, then for heaven's sakes, this verse all by itself ought to be enough to say, I need to do that. I need to do that. It's part of God's plan, and somehow it links to the very person and power and presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I want to receive God's best gift in its absolute fullness. So if you haven't been, 
you've probably been nudged this way before. If you haven't been, and you, you realize you want to be, you let me know. I baptized an adult here last, a week ago Tuesday. We don't have to have a whole service. This is not a religious activity. This is not a ritual. This is between you and God. On that day of Pentecost, I think there were people being baptized everywhere they could find a little water. Baptism is between you and the Lord and, and somebody who witnesses it. But it says, I, I desire, what, whatever God intends this to do for me, I want it. And without it, I'm somehow missing it. Oh, Pastor Mark, I'd like to be baptized. I need to be baptized. I want to be baptized. You let me know. If we get 15 of you, we'll have a service. We'll line up and we'll be all 15 of us and there'll be rejoicing and the gift It'd be a bigger gift giving than Christmas as the Holy Spirit is given. I delight in thinking these days and even saying when somebody comes out of the water of baptism to be able to say to them, now receive. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because I know something more is going to be given to them as a result of their obedience to Christ than what had been able to be given to them prior. I'm not going to tell you what the more is. I don't know. I just know it's God's plan, God's will. So that's what Peter shared the very first day. Every single human being receives that gift of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes in response to Jesus' request, then what is true of them is what Jesus said. The Spirit will be with them forever. If you're a born-again child of God, the Spirit of God is with you. He's the one that witnesses to your heart, you are a child of God. He is the one who comes into your heart saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, you have the Spirit. Of course you do. He'll be with you forever. I'm just saying baptism opens another little doorway for him to get into your heart and into your life and influencing you, even in an area that maybe you've been resistant. And so we ask this question now, today's final question. Are you enjoying God's best gift? You really sense the the fullness and the joy and the power and the pleasure of having the Holy Spirit absolutely within you. And if not, why not? I, I just say a couple quick questions. Is it a lack of repentance? Peter says repent. Every believer, there's the possibility that they still can be holding on to something that doesn't belong. Some sinful behavior, some sinful attitude, some sinful practice, something that does not honor God, and yet they're holding on to it, and they need to repent of it. They need to turn their back on it. They need to get it out of their life, because the presence of such a thing hurts, grieves the very Spirit of God. And then, of course, I just asked the question, have you not identified yourself with Christ in baptism? Baptism is, a, we said here, a very special door you might picture 
into your heart and soul and spirit that the Holy Spirit can come through that is, is just called baptism. And it may bring him in to the very spot in your life that most needs his touch. Are you falling? Are you failing to keep in step with him? That's what Paul says. Keep in step now with the Spirit. He walks with you. He would guide you. He would direct you. Keep in step with him. Don't drag him around. Let him lead you around. Don't let these things of the Spirit grow dull and cold. Read things that keep you conscious of him. Read your nudges and hugs if you don't have anything better. Read them every day and say the Holy Spirit walks with me and I with him and I hear his voice and I'm staying sensitive to the kind of life he wants me to live. Well, having said that, now surely, surely the testimony our Abba Father would have every one of his born-again children share is the one expressed in our final thought this morning. Here it is. I trust this is the testimony of every one of us in this room. Jesus has brought the Father's best gift into my life. The Spirit of God is my answer for everything. Our Heavenly Father in this sanctuary, we can think that, say that, and even feel that because the Spirit of God is here with us. He's helping us. And the world has been muted a bit. And our flesh has been sedated a bit. And the devil has been removed completely. So, Father, right now, right here, we pray that, that the gift that you have given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ, the gift you have given in response to Jesus' own request of you, that that gift might be embraced by us evermore and that we would seek to be obedient to every teaching that Spirit has ever given. That we might know the fullness of the life you have for us. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.